the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to The Firing Line with Philip Naiman. The Firing Line radio show is brought to you by Bullseye Sports in Riverside, CCW Safe, Cutting Edge Bullets, Vortex Optics, Vortex, The Force of Optics, and by Philip Naiman and Cornerstone Christian Wealth Management. And now your host, Philip Naiman. Good. Bad. I'm the guy with the gun. Hey, folks, welcome to Firing Line Radio Show. This is Philip Neyman here. I hope you're having a great day. And if you've been watching any of our uh, our scenes that we have going on, uh, scenes on Facebook or Gab or Rumble, all those things we've been posting, you've noticed that I am planning on being in charge of California. Now, I'm not running for governor, okay? Because I don't want to be the governor. I'm going to be the emperor of California because I need emperor's powers to fix this place up. So if you've heard my, uh, my agenda on the air, uh, some of the things that I've posted, number one, first thing is we are getting rid of all fast track lanes and diamond lanes. We are widening the freeway every chance we get. We're making the five freeway, four lanes, both ways, taking all the train money in the world and increasing our freeway size. So you have freedom of movement because for crying out loud, how many of you have given up two hours a day sitting in traffic for, because some urban planner thinks you should ride a bus? It's not good. So we're giving people back our freedom of movement. That's rule number one. Number two, we are disbanding the legislature. Now, as emperor, I do have this power, but that will make them a lot of whiny little sissies. Not that they already aren't, but we're actually just going to pay them to do nothing. So I'm going to double their pay, more than double their pay, half a million dollars a piece, not to do anything. If they write a bill, they lose their money. So I think that's the best way is just to bribe them into a level of incompetence that doesn't hurt the state any further. Then we audit the state, but we're not going to pay for an audit of the state. We're going to give 2% of all the fraud to the auditors as their payment. So we're going to turn them loose, let them find the fraud and the overspending. How do we pay for it? 2% of the savings goes to them. That would be several billion dollars. Sounds like a great deal uh, on that. So we can clean that area up. And then we're talking now on my fourth point, which is security. I do believe in the mantra that we need to make prisons safe. Make prisons safe. And I believe that. And the best way to make prisons safe is to keep the felons in prison, locked up, remove all weight rooms. Why are you letting homicidal maniacs bench 450 pounds. I don't see the logic there. Um, put them on a plant-based diet because of the earth and, and greenness. So we'll get them the uh, some soy and, and uh, water and maybe some bread if they bake it themselves. But the prisoners should be in prison and they should actually hate life. We'll have two types of prisons, one for everybody who's caused physical harm, uh, rapists, murderers, pedophiles, they all go in one. They really don't get to go outside much. They die in that particular prison. The other one is for 20 years or more. So if you don't like it, don't do a crime in my state. And as emperor, this is the way it's going to go. Tell you more next week about part five and how we're going to, again, increase freedoms, increase safety, and increase common sense because common sense in California is not common. <sighs> 
unless you want to vote for the um, athlete formerly known as Bruce. See, I think I'm a much better choice as emperor of California. So that's where we're at. That's what we're looking for to do. Folks, joining me, I don't know if he's still going to be there when I, when I turn this over to him here, but attempting to join me on this show, I have Brian Martin. Brian Martin's with Asian Mountain Outfitters. Now, I've talked about them before in the past when I've done some, uh, some scouting, not scouting, done some research on things that I wanted to do. Asian Mountain Outfitters are the premier international hunting booking agency. If you're really thinking about something off the charts, these are the guys you're going to want to talk to, and that's Brian Martin. Brian, how you doing? I'm good, and I like I like your little emperor uh, proposition. That sounded sounded better than the alternatives that we've been facing. No, you know what? Let, I'll debate them. Let's go. Hey, here's I got I got a ten point plan. I make it twenty points. I can do this all day long. I look around. I see this is stupid. Why is this happening? We should fix this. Oh, look, here's an answer. Let's do it. Why are we not doing it? It's going to hurt somebody's feelings. Oh, the heck with their feelings. You know. Rainbows and unicorns. Unicorns are on the hunting. That's one of my other lists. They're actually a game animal. You can draw a tag, get rid of unicorns because they're just causing all kinds of stupidity out here that we just can't deal with any longer. It used to be jackalopes. Now it's unicorns. Ah, Jackalopes are cool. There's jackalope behind me on my screen. Did you see there? Exactly. It's a size large jackalope. That's a wolf size jackalope. (laughs) Anyway. Hey, Brian, tell us a little bit about Asian Mountain Outfitters. Well, uh, yeah, Asian Mountain Outfitters, uh, I started that in 2002. I was a British Columbia outfitter, kind of on a small part-time basis. Where, where in British I, Columbia? Um, my outfitting business was in northern British Columbia in the Cassiars and Rocky Mountains up in Region 7. Is and that by Jennings I, Lake at all? Uh, no, different. Uh, Jennings mm-hmm. Lake is, uh, you're thinking Jennings River, Jennings Lake, which is yeah. northwest of that. No, that's closer to, to Watson Lake or Whitehorse. Yeah. I was um, south, about 170 to 200 miles south of the Yukon, right dead center between the Calciar and the Alcan highways. How, how did you get into guiding? You know, it's a rough life. How did you, people love hunting. They think, wow, it'd be great to be a guide, but man, that's a rough, rough go. So, so I got into hunting guiding because of my love of hunting. Um, and I was in college and I just started and I wanted to go to British Columbia, Alaska. And I happened to meet some guys that had moved from Oregon where I grew up to British Columbia. And they said, Hey, if you want to come up, we can't pay you because you're not a Canadian, but you can come learn the ropes and help us out. Isn't that, the way, isn't that a great way the way Canadians do that? Oh yeah. You can come up here and work your tail off, but I can't pay you because you're not Canadian. Like he couldn't slip you some hundreds underneath the, the counter, right? Oh no, can't do that. eh? take off. We can't pay you. But, but you you're know, American. I, yeah. So, so there went my, you know, my, I, I used to do summer works on our family farm. And um, the neighbor's farm and made pretty good money doing that, you know, wheat crops and, and uh, we had cattle. And, and so outfitting was obviously I didn't make any money, uh, you know, for a couple summers. But um, I luckily had some scholarships in school. So the school wasn't so expensive. I went to Oregon State as an engineering student. But I, I always loved the hunting. And I thought, you know, if I'm going to go into engineering, I might not be able to go hunting very much until I'm 40, 45 years old. You know, to the, life, yeah. to the amount that I wanted to, because when you're running big construction projects and big engineering projects as a manager, you get two, three, four weeks a year. And I wanted to hunt about three to four months a year. And I like the adventure of it. So I um, moved to Montana after I got done in college. I spent two full summers in British Columbia. And then when I graduated, I um, actually did a whole from June until December until Christmas. I guided 
and scouted for bighorn sheep in a bunch of Western states for like the governor tag and commissioner tag holders. And then I was already transitioning to Montana. So, cause my mom is from Montana. So as soon as I got in guiding, I moved to Bozeman, Montana. I started helping outfitters uh, buy and sell hunting territories and working, working in hunting ranches. And then I said, you know what, this is still too much office work and too much truck time. And I'm young and crazy. And so I um, moved to British Columbia, bought a hunting territory up there and then ran hunting territories in Canada, you know, for up until the last year or two during COVID, obviously what, uh, two years that we haven't been able to do anything. Yeah. Ridiculous. Because you, you know, if you've trained for a sheep hunt, you obviously have COVID, right? Uh, yeah. yeah. Who knows? Yeah. If you can <laughs> climb an 11,000 foot mountain, you obviously have, I've been telling people that cause I've been training for myself for my own, uh, my own hunt. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. And it's like, Hey, I do, I do four COVID tests a week um, yeah. at jujitsu. Your heart rate's 180. You don't have COVID or you'd be dead climbing a mountain, you know, working out. Those are all COVID tests. If you can do all that, you don't have COVID. It's really easy. Cause if you have you're it, you're hacking up a lung and not on oxygen, you're good to go. <clears throat> pretty much. Pretty yeah. much. Yeah. So, you know, it's ridiculous that they've lost two years out there. Yeah, it's it's um, you know, it kind of hit a little bit in January and February, and then end of February, first week in March is when everything shut down last year. We did a trade show uh, in, in Iowa. I'm, I also work with Rolling Bones uh, Outdoors here in, in Spearfish, South Dakota, and I partnered with them on uh, a lot of their stuff. And then I still do the Asian Mountain stuff full time. And we were just leaving a trade show in Iowa, the, the Iowa Deer Classic. And uh, on the way home, they said, you know, they're starting to shut down airports and. And then all the next trade shows were all shut down. All the, the trade shows like in Wisconsin that sometimes we go to, Minnesota, um, different chapters in the Midwest. The main shows like Dallas, SCI, and Wild Sheep are finished. Um, but a lot of the smaller shows, which take place March, April, May, they all had to close. The Wild Sheep Society of BC show, it closed. You know, the Alberta uh, Wild Sheep Society, all that stuff, they all closed. I mean, nobody could go to any of them. So it has been that way. Canada is worse. And that's one of the main reasons I moved back between that and Rolling Bones and my family stone in the U.S. I was the only person in my family in Canada. So now down here, it's a lot easier to come and go. They don't have any restrictions really in South Dakota with travel or mask wearing. You're you're in a pretty pretty free state there. The thing with uh, Canada, I mean, you take a look. They have gotten so heavy-handed, Nazi-ish, really Nazi-ish, because they're going to churches and arresting pastors. Remember that Polish pastor, him and his brother yeah. got arrested and yeah. another so guy you got heard arrested. His accent, right? So you heard his accent. So he actually had to fight real communists to right. get over here, right? He was obviously yeah. born. He, he's not from Canada. He obviously came over from the Eastern Bloc countries, which means he lived under their oppression. And then all of a sudden, he's got this in his own hometown in Canada. So, hey, we're going to fix all that, especially as Emperor of California. Folks, Philip Naiman, Firing Line Radio Show. Get our podcast at FiringLineRadio.com. Check out Brian Martin at Asian Mountain Outfitters. We're going to talk about some fun stuff that they're doing coming up after this. AM 590, the answer. This portion of the firing line is brought to you by Bullseye Sports in Riverside. All right, you primitive screwheads, listen up. See this? This is my boomstick. Hey, folks, welcome back to Boomstick Radio. If you're uh, watching along at home here on, a, on the video screen, we are recording this. And I think, as I've been told before, all the stuff in between 
these sessions is actually the gold. You know, we kind of do these sessions and, and, and it's the in-between talk that you only see if you go and look on our Gab, uh, Gab TV and, and see us on there. That's the only, st- only place you're going to get the really, really good stuff. So anyway, I encourage you to check us out on that. And as always... This show is brought to you by Bullseye Sports Guns and Ammo in Riverside, corner of Brockton and Arlington. Go see Vince. Because of the gun shortage and ammunition shortage in California, once again, this week is Christmas. What does that mean? It means that right now you don't have anything. But if you go there and see whatever's in stock, you'll be surprised. So it's just like Christmas. Hey, last week I didn't have a Glock 19. Look, there's a Glock 19 in the case. It's Christmas. I should buy it. That's the way we need to look at things because the supply chain is so messed up. If you go to the gun stores early, go to the gun stores often, you're going to find what you need. So keep heading out there to Vince's at Bullseye Sports Guns and Ammo in Riverside, Brockton and Arlington, 951-823-0211. Tell them we said hi. Um, and, uh, and enjoy your new Christmas present every day. Joining me back here, folks, I have Brian Martin, Brian Martin of Asian Mountain Outfitting. And we were talking in the off moment there about some of the different challenges that uh, wild animals have. And in California, we have some huge, huge challenges. Uh, I was mentioning a little bit about the Society of California Bighorn Sheep and how those guys are out there doing the yeoman's work and really saving animals when the agencies aren't or aren't prepared to, or don't want to spend the money in that direction. So these are people raising their own funds and doing it for, for, for all the right reasons. So I, I hats off to them, but in California, um, as Brian was saying, we could have a great deer herd. We could have a healthy deer herd. The animal that's on the screen behind me, that's a, a Sonoran mule deer. It's the same strain that runs all the way up the Colorado river Valley. So D 17, D 12, these animals live out in that area. And I've seen some boomers come out of California. Um, but it's it's a deer herd management issue. You're only going to find them around water sources, and there's not a lot of them out there. And again, who's putting out the water sources? And when the antlers get that big, they can't get their head in a in a guzzler. <laughs> so <laughs> sometimes that's a problem too. Um, Brian, you had a couple of, of ideas about making an animal herd healthy. Well, for example, in the desert, like in in, in Mexico. Uh, it's, it's the, the wildlife is more privatized down there than it is say in California. And so what they've done is they've introduced feeding programs. They've introduced a lot more water. They've even done some high fencing, which I don't really like hunting those kind of animals behind high fence, but they were, they did allow them to double, triple, quadruple, whatever the population in the last few years. Right. And so the main thing in the desert is if you can keep the predators down and you can provide water, the, the deserts have always quite a bit of feed out there, high protein feed around but the water is what gets them just like in the, the heat and, the, and the, the drought will kill animals in the desert just like the snow and the cold will kill an animal in Colorado you know or British Columbia and then you have the issues with the feral horses and donkeys in these desert areas and so the, you know the greenies and people that are bleeding hearts about these animals and they said well you know has, like you said it has a face well that face eats a lot of food and the desert environments don't have enough food. And that, to face, that face has no natural predators. No natural predators. And, you know, unless you go out there and either shoot them or remove them, you know, trapping them. But there's not enough. I don't, I, I don't believe there's enough people that want to, you know, inherit or adopt a wild horse that's going to kick and bite and buck them off. You know, it takes a real cowboy to break these animals. You know, I mean, they, they need to eliminate them. I mean, they want to go out and castrate them or, you know, not even castrate them. I've heard give them a shot so that they're sterile. 
And I mean, the, 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 you could you could do everything with a bullet, <laughs> and you could do things with refrigerator trucks, and you could butcher them and sell the meat, you know, for either dog food or whatever. You could feed homeless people, for that matter, with them, and you could actually, you know, have a financial benefit instead of a financial loss and economic. You have an, now you have an economic loss. You have um, a habitat loss. You have wildlife issues, and you know the U, the, the Fish and Wildlife agencies became more paper pushers. Then they actually do, uh, you know, conservation organizations. So I've I've quoted this many, many times, but every big environmental disaster is caused by environmentalists. The letting the wild horses roam instead of calling some of the herds. Now we have depredation. And, And the problem is when an area gets eaten down to the ground, it doesn't come back. Recovery time is very long. It takes big rains. It takes time. It could be and 20 years, takes, right? It takes decades, yes. So, so they've, they destroy swaths of areas. So, yeah, the recovery time, you know, the environmentalists, honestly, they, they want, oh, little donkeys. Let's keep the donkeys up here. Yeah, great. We have enough donkeys in, in excremento. We don't need any of them all over these hills. But they destroy everything. And they're very aggressive. When they get on a water source, they will push the natural animals out, the deer and the Bighorn sheep, excuse me, which are much smaller than they are, they beat them up. They kick them. They don't let them to the water, and then those animals die. So we have an invasive species, um, which which is interesting because U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service considered Rocky Mountain mule deer and Rocky Mountain um, elk an invasive species in Santa Cruz Islands, Channel Islands, and they gunshipped them off. They killed every single one of those 1,100 animals left rotting in the sun, but they won't touch the horses and the donkeys because they have a face. And so, it, again, it's the decisions are, are not made scientifically. They're made ridiculously. And, and the predator thing here in California, I just heard in Southern California, they're going to try and make the mountain lion an endangered species. Now, where well, I live. How can you have an endangered species if nobody's hunting them? The only way it would be. If you had a lack of um, wild game for them to eat. They're actually they're in California among the environmentalists. The, the mountain lion is basically worshipped. It is their goddess. Okay. And, and I mean this because they can do no wrong. We've had four animals killed in the last week by where I live within a mile of my home by mountain lions. Yeah. Fish and wildlife uh, DFG came out and said, oh, all we can do is issue a hazing permit because, you know, mountain lions just haze them. Go away. You're ugly. Your tail's too long. What? Right. It's a predator. It's found an easy food source. It's going to come back. It's going to continue to eat animals, dogs, maybe a kid or two. And then it's too late. And the other part in California is is all of our hunting dogs are gone. We can't hunt with uh, dogs uh, except for pigs in California. So if you get a depredation permit, now you got to call somebody from Arizona. And you know when you're tracking, you need it. You know, timestamp is is important that you get somebody out here quick. So it's really ridiculous what the fishing game department has done. Um, the, and and not only that, but the fishing game department isn't the law states it's shall issue if there is you know loss of property damage. It's a shall issue a depredation permit. But you got the wardens up there afraid of their bosses saying that oh well here's a hey we're going to let you um, yell at them here here's a hazing permit this will work yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it it doesn't work. It's not logical. It's not sustainable, and um, that's why that's why private property always has more elk and deer on it than public land because the owners 
uh, of the sure. property, they have a vested interest, you know, to either raise cattle or ra- raise the elk and sell the trespass rights. You know, where the public land gets overhunted, I call it tragedy of the commons, which is a term I used back when I was in school that, you know, um, you know, we better shoot it today because if we don't shoot it, you know, Joe might shoot it. And, right. you know, the animal, the predators are not being managed and you're not managing. And then the, people don't want fires because it burns all the houses. But when you suppress fire, you, su- you, pr- you suppress, you know, the natural destroys fertilization the ecosystem. and everything. It totally destroys the ecosystem. And then the uh, when a fire does roll through, like and we had a, last it's August, brutal. it's a thousand foot flames. Uh, yeah, yeah, it anyway. burns too hot. Yep. It, it almost so, sterilizes the ground. <laughs> You're absolutely right, man. You're, you know, you agree with me. So you are absolutely right. Um, let's talk about something else that you've got going on here. Now, the reason that I called you up and said, Hey, I really want to talk about this is I am a hunter. Okay. You do guiding, but one of the things that you brought up and, and did some posting about where I, where I found it is a camp, a shooting camp for hunters. Right. Now I've done a little bit of guiding, not as an official, but helping people out. And you know what? The one truth I've seen time and time again is guys do not shoot enough. They don't know their weapon. They don't know their trajectories. They don't even know where their safeties are. You know, the, the scope got put on the night before. It's just, it's a tragedy of errors, right? And yeah. so you're addressing this. And, you know, I've done a lot of, of uh, sessions with Rex um, Tibor from Rex Defense. We've done hunting classes with him and shooting classes, and that's awesome. But you've got something a little bit different here. So let me turn it over to you. Tell me what you what you're doing there. So, so the the, the program that you saw was out of Branded Rock uh, Canyon Ranch. And where is and that exactly? It's actually in Debec, Colorado, which is about an hour east of Grand Junction on the western side of the state near Utah. So it's what we call the West Slope, not the East Slope of Colorado. It's dry. It's, it's mesas and buttes and, and fairly low precipitation. Lots of pinion juniper. And a, great, and a great hunting area. Look, we got, I ran you into the curb here. We have to take a break. But we'll come right back here, folks. We're talking about Branded Rock Canyon and a, a hunting shooting course with Brian Martin, Asian Mountain Outfitters. We'll be right back after this. Have questions about handgun safety, local sports shooting events, or your Second Amendment rights? Just ask Vince at Bullseye Sport in Riverside. Get practical advice, no sales pitch. Vince is a straight shooter when it comes to sharing his advice and years of gun experience. Whether you're a seasoned gun owner or a newcomer, at Bullseye Sport, they welcome everyone, especially ladies considering a firearm for the first time. When they go to our store, we want to give them something that they're going to feel comfortable with. And if you're looking to purchase a gun, ammo, or accessories... If we don't have it, we will get it for you. For all the answers to your rifle and handgun questions, just ask Vince at Bullseye Sport. 951-823-0211. Bullseye Sport in Riverside. Proud sponsor of the Firing Line Gun Show, Saturdays at 1 p.m. on AM 590. Follow Bullseye Sport on Facebook for your inventory updates or call 951-823-0211. AM 590, the answer. This portion of the firing line is brought to you by CCW Safe by Philip Naiman and Cornerstone Christian Wealth Management. Spartans, lay down your weapons! Persians, come and get them! Hello, folks. It's Mulan Labe Saturday. Philip Naiman here with Brian Martin, Brian Martin of Asian Mountain Outfitters. We're talking about a hunting course. Now, what does that mean? Well, you know, I've done these before. We do 
primers to big game hunting for people who are just interested and want to understand what that's about. This is the next level. And this is a field event where they're actually taking you out to Western Colorado. I've hunted a lot out of Montrose, but they're talking even farther West than that out in the, the, uh, the plateau, the Uncompagre. On Compagre Plateau, which is really cool area, it almost looks like mini Grand Canyons everywhere you go. So it's a beautiful spot out there. Branded Rock Canyon is where he's at. And then what are you guys doing out there? You're just uh, having beers or what, Brian? Uh, beers in the evening, but no beers until the guns are put away. <laughs> I guess the rules for out there. So usually beers start at 630 at night. Um, but what we do is um, there's a guest ranch out there called Branded Rock Canyon Ranch. And my sister runs it for the owner. Um, her and her husband are the managers. She, she's a general manager, and he's like the uh, facility manager of all the maintenance and all the buildings and everything. Right. And they make a good team. She used to be involved in the hunting business uh, from a long time, both as first as a cameraman. Then she ran a Tanzania hunting business for about three years. And now she does this. This is her, I think, four and a half years they've been out there. For, maybe this is fourth or four and a half. And um, so they have a really world-class shooting facility. Um, they have a big lodge. Um, they have like a, a side, I call it a side lodge. It's just basic living quarters. And then they built a, a zero range uh, for the guns. And there you can shoot five to six people at a time and then rotate. And that's zero range goes out to 600 yards. And then we have two other big courses on, on the ranch. One is shooting uh, round and square targets um, from 600 to 1,000 yards. And then they have what they call the Yeti or Sasquatch shoot, which is uh, 1,700. It's basically a mile, 1,775 yards is actually how far it is. We're a mile 1,760. And then we have uh, a couple other ranges that are up on the side of the mountain that go from about 6,000 feet up to about 8,200 feet, almost 8,500 feet. And there's a variety of targets there. You can shoot from anywhere from 200 yards to about 1,500 yards. And you can shoot uphill and downhill at 30, 35 degree angles. So you can really teach and practice the uphill and downhill shooting. And most of these targets are shaped like an animal. They're steel silhouettes, AR steel, elk, Marco Polo, bighorn sheep, mountain goats, uh, moose, uh, brown bears, black bears, turkeys, rabbits, wolves, antelope. Oh, they have all those targets out there. And so the courses are expensive. They start around five or $6,000 and they go up to about 7,500, which is expensive for a shooting school. Um, but they, they pick people up at the airport. And then they drive them out there. It's about an hour drive. And then everything's included. You, they have a package where you get a rifle. They usually shoot 6.5 Creedmoors. These are training guns so people don't get beat up with recoil. And then most hunters will bring one of their own hunting guns. So they shoot for three to four days. And they t- talk about, you know, like getting shots, not just on a bipod, not on a bench, but shooting off your pack, shooting off a tripod, shooting off a monopod, shooting off a bike, you know, shoot shooting off of uh, rocks in you know, lots of different hill and downhill shooting. And um, you're also doing some of the, the, the one instructor, Mark, he likes mills. And then I'm more of an MOA guy. Most hunters understand inches and better than mills. So the mill is great once you understand the system, but for hunting in the heat of the moment, when like, we you know the crap hits the fan, um, usually guys say, you know, you hit him in the guts, you missed him in front of the shoulder, you know, so shooting mills when you're hunting is not necessarily you know, that's what a lot of PRS shooters and your tactical shooters and your, you know, your yeah. military snipers do. Um, and that, and the other part on that is a lot of guys, they, they like the mills because then they can measure with it. Well, if they're measuring with their reticle, they're usually using a first focal plane scope. And if yeah. you're using a first focal plane scope for hunting, I have found that to be not the best mix for hunting conditions because 
first thing in the morning, last thing in the afternoon, uh, in waning light, you're going to be cranked down to, you know, three, four, five power. So you get some, yeah, and you can't see anything. And then you have to have it illuminated. But in Colorado, you can't have an illuminated reticle. So it's really, um, I understand, like you're saying, I understand the mill shooting and it's got its place. And for people who consistently shoot that, it's great. First focal plane, if you're shooting PRS all day long, it's wonderful. You can do a lot of things with that. But for hunting, you're typically, I feel, should have a second focal plane scope. Um, uh, number one, it's what I've always used. But number two, because of that exact reason, I did take one out in the first focal plane in the field one time, and I thought, I really am not comfortable with this. So great scope, but I didn't like that that variability of my crosshair size in hunting conditions. You know, if Correct. you're... Yeah, if you're shooting PRS and you're on four power, it's because you're shooting a target 50 yards away and it's you know, yeah. bright sunlight, so it's not a big deal. But in shooting into shadows, man, forget about it. Or or uh, say it's a sunrise and, and you're aiming towards the sunrise on a darkened hill and you're at, trying to get as much light in there as you can at four power, forget it. You know? Yeah, well, there, there's, there's two times to shoot a, a, second, a first focal plane scope, in my opinion. Like competition is, is one. Because when you're shooting uh, targets, you can range the target. You can, yeah. you can, your, your it, wind hull is the same, yeah. right? Whether, so if you want to shoot a line correction, which is your vertical line, or you want to shoot a horizontal wind correction, you can do it quickly without turning your dial on your turret because everything is at the same gap, right? Everything is one MOA or a tenth of a mil or, you know, two tenths of a mil, depending on the scope. So in hunting, if you're hunting, say, like Marco Polo sheep, and you're hunting mainly between 200 and 600 yards, and you're hunting not shooting at first light or last light, and you're going to be mainly with your crosshairs in the middle power. So you're not going to be shooting. So let's say, let's take a Night Force 5 to 25 ATAC R, you know, the Leopold 5 to 25. That's a five power chain scope. If you're shooting, say, between 10 power and, say, 18 or 20 power, you're in that middle zone and the reticle looks really nice in that power range. When you go to the max power, the reticle gets a little big. When you go on the five power, it goes a little small. And I learned when I was shooting with the, the night force NX eights, they go four to 32. So on four power, because it's eight power t- times change instead of five, that is actually even, you know, expressed in a bigger way. So it's really fine on four power and really big on 32. So for me, if you're going to shoot first focal planes, there's, there's again, two reasons. Um, one is, well, three reasons. One is it for, for, for the tactical shooting on targets. But if you're hunting, you're going to be shooting in the middle power range. And you're going to do a lot of quick wind call corrections, and they're fine. Or if you are a guy who likes shooting the lines and don't like dialing. If you don't like dialing your scope, then I've seen a lot of hunters screw up um, when they're shooting a second focal plane scope, not having on the max power setting where the lines are a, a, a true one MOA. Hey, that is, that is a screw up. That's not knowing your stuff. Yeah. And so I've seen that happen a lot. So let's say you have a Swarovski six to 24. I've seen this happen. 24 power is too high. They need to have it down in 12 power, but they forget that in 12 power, the line gap went from one MOA to two MOA or two two MOA to four MOA. And so then they do a quick hold with their old TDS reticle or the BRX reticle. And they just double their gap instead of a two MOA or three MOA hold. Now they got a six MOA hold and they forget. So that's how why you, second focal And how point. do you learn this? How do you learn this? You go out to the desert, you go out to branded rock, you beat up rocks, you right. take good sized rocks and you make them smaller and, and, and you have to learn your angles and you have to learn your power settings. And, you know, not everything should be prone. You should be shooting 
Like I, I have a, a tripod. I love to shoot off the tripod. Uh, I shot my elk last time around the, off the tripod off of a super steep hill shooting cross Canyon. There's no way to get prone. It was 570 yards. So I actually used the tripod. It was perfect for that. Um, you have to learn what your advantages are. We shoot off the top of a, of my backpack. We did a, I do hunting hikes uh, up here as part of my training for my sheep hunt. So it's like three and a half mile hike up the hill and then there's a long ridge and you can see out, you know, 2,200 yards if you really want to get crazy with it, but try and pick rocks, rocks that are like the size of your laptop, you know, a kill zone. First round hits. Exactly. And just calling off different angles, different yardages and sitting on the side of the hill with your backpack in front of you and you've got your binocular case shoved underneath your right arm. So you've got that stabilized. And making the shot because that's what's going to happen in the field. So you're not going to have one of those lead sleds on a table for your 300 rum where you can sit back and go, right? You have to, you have to know what's going to happen. And the only way to do that is to start now, start hiking the hills, find some BLM land where you can, you know, find decent rocks at decent. Some guys will hike out steel. I, I just, you know, I don't know if I'm supposed to or not, but I make, I make rocks into smaller rocks and just, you know, it's the way it is. No, that works well. You, and if you have private land, sometimes we'll, I'll walk out and paint targets on some of the rocks just so it's easier for people to identify. If you're doing a shooting school, I've seen times guys can't, that's, they don't know what rock they're shooting at. No, that's actually, I think that's great practice is the clock face, right? Yep. Now to me, I don't know. I've hunted with some guys for a long, long time. We have our own language. Hey, see where the ridge soups over and bowls out? Yeah, we know exactly what we're looking at, right? I, I say that to somebody else. They're like, so um, if you if you paint a if you paint a square or a circle on a rock and white or orange paint on something on private property where you you either own it or you have permission to do it on, now you got a target that you put the spine scope on. It's pretty impossible for them to not know what you're talking about. True, but we talk about talk about uh, target identification because that helps a lot in hunting. Uh, we got to take another break here. We'll come right back with our last segment: Branded Rock Canyon uh, Hunting Group and Asian Mountain Outfitters with Brian Martin. We'll be right back after this. Hi, folks. Philip Naiman from Firing Line Radio Show. If you're a concealed handgun carrier or have a firearm to defend your home and are forced to use your weapon for self-defense or the protection of a loved one, you'll be glad to have CCW Safe on your side. CCW Safe provides and pays 100% upfront defense funds for high-quality attorneys, expert witnesses, and the investigators you need following a critical incident with no reimbursement. And they do it all for one flat yearly fee starting at $179 a year. CCW Safe has permit and non-permit plans to protect California residents in this state and while traveling across the country. So check out their new ultimate plan with no caps on criminal and civil defense, $1 million for bond coverage, a dedicated $1 million for civil liability, and many other benefits. You defend your life. CCW Safe will defend your freedom and financial future. In California, CCW Safe has got you covered. So join now at CCWSafe.com. AM590, the answer. This portion of the firing line is brought to you by Vortex Optics. Vortex, the force of optics. Yes! Great hunter. Yes? Yes. Fine figure of a man. Yes? Yes? Yes. That is all you need to know for now. Hey, folks, Philip Neyman, Firing Line Radio Show. Welcome back here with Brian Martin, AsianMountainOutfitters.com, AsianMountainOutfitters.com. Check them out. See some of their videos. They've just, 
it's dream stuff, the stuff dreams are made of. Now, um, as we were cutting off our last section there, one of the things I think is important about talking in the field, like I said, having your own language, is target identification. Now, yes, if you paint a big white square on a rock, somebody should be able to see that. But a lot of times, let's say that you're on a deer hunt and you as the guide who know where to look for deer and know what deer look like, and you're trying to explain to somebody where that deer is on that mountain, you know, one of the things I always try and do is, is, and even have the conversation before you hit the field about the clock face, that we're going to find an item on that hill that is very easily identifiable. Maybe it's a giant white boulder and maybe it's not where the animal is, but I can get you to look at the giant white boulders. See that? Yes, I see that, but 25 foot white boulder. Okay. 530 from that. What does that mean? It means lower and to the right, 530 from that, 100 yards, you'll see a clearing. Yeah. Okay. I got that. Great. Three o'clock from that, 60 yards, that's the animal. They go, oh, right. But if you try and, you know, you need to have a communication skill like that, right? It's really important. And what you just said is very critical uh, about finding an object on the mountain. What I normally do, because we're doing a lot of long range glassing and I always have a spotting scope. So a lot of your guides may or may not have a spine scope because they're hunting deer and they're maybe not looking more than a mile, but I'm probably spotting 60% of the animals we hunt with my spotting scope alone because it's too far to find with the binoculars. So I might look way out there and show them where it's at. But then when you get closer, even sometimes they can't see embedded in the rocks. So I always take my spine scope and put them on the animal. So mm-hmm. I said, see that right there. And then I said, okay, look at that hillside. Like there's that, there's that big rock face with a white strip on it. You see that? Okay. So come down, like you said, come down about a hundred yards and some guys have no concept of depth. So hundred yards of some guys is hundred feet to the next guy and 200 yards to the next person. But I said, okay, see that next rock straight down at, at, 12, at six o'clock, which is straight below. And then you go over at nine o'clock, which is straight to your left, another 50 yards, like you said, and I would do something like that. But normally I put it on the animal. And so what happens, guys see it with a spine scope and then they get, it. they get down behind their gun and they can't find the thing in the rifle scope. And so that's why you always want your binoculars. So I keep my binoculars, you know, there and I look right over the top of the gun. So let's say I'm shooting a prone position or sitting and I got the gun cradled in my arm on my knee and I'm looking and I okay, okay, there's a tree. I range find the animal. I range find around the animal in case something happens. I know their animal's 425. That saddle is 500. The, the canyon below me is, you know, 385. So I know I set the turret where I want if I have a turret scope. And then I keep, so then I pull the gun up, concentrating on where the animal is. I mean, it's easy for me. I just look at the animal and just point it. But a lot of people have a hard time. And that's why, again, you want to be able to turn your scope down to lower power. And sometimes you're not going to shoot if you have a 3.5 to 18, whatever. I think, like, say, Shrovsky, I think Shrovsky makes a Z5, for example. You have it on 18 power. It's not going to work very well to find the animal. You might need it on 10 or 12 power. So if you're shooting the lines, like we were talking about, a second focal plane scope, you're going to have some error. So that's why most people are better off with a turret scope. And the main thing is that they have a zero, zero stop. So they don't over rotate the turret. <laughs> and now they're shooting at a thousand yards or 800 yards instead of, uh, you know, yeah. uh, uh, 200 yards. Zero. And I'm that's not in competition. Times I've, I've lost, I've lost my zero in a PRS before I didn't have a zero stop on a scope I was using. And I lost my zero. I was a full rotation off and the 450 yards. I'm six feet high. I'm like, I got to put the gun down and figure something out because this is all wrong. And it was, yeah. I, I was, I was on the right number, but one dial off, you know, and that 
that so yeah, yeah. zero stops absolutely um the other thing that we talked about on that laying down is is knowing your scope so you have a you have a three to eighteen you maybe you want to shoot on eighteen power, but you can't find the animal you need to have the practice ability to reach up, grab the power ring down to three, find it, hold it, zoom back up on the animal while while you're down on the gun. If you keep lifting your head up off the gun to look on the hill, forget about it. We've all seen that, right? You And the other part is practicing with your rifle offhand. I think this helps a thousand percent in gun mounting. Not that you have to shoot 500 rounds offhand, which would be a good idea, but Dry fire 500 rounds. You when, dry you're, fire. when you're looking at the target, right? Your head needs to be on the target. And guys need to realize when they're mounting their rifle that they bring the rifle up to their head. Okay? Correct. You don't put the gun on your shoulder and bend your arm down and try and find through the scope where something's at because that you've just lost it. And so especially if you're practicing on something moving, uh, running a jackrabbit or something, if you're watching and you bring that gun up and you just continue your motion, right as that scope comes to your face, you're on the on the target. You're so where you need to be. Yeah. It's basically you're mounting it like you would if you're shooting skeet or clay pigeons or sporting clays, right? You're, so, you're starting and you never take your eye off the target. You never take your eye off that deer or that rock that's right beside the deer. So when you right. get the crosshairs on the rock, you know the deer is right beside it. Exactly. So you are there and the gun comes to your face. You never bring, you never move. Like you said, you never take your eye off the target to look through the scope. The scope comes up into your line of vision. Yeah. It's target acquisition. Target acquisition is one of the biggest issues I run into with hunting internationally on these hard to see bedded Ibex and Marco Polo. And they go, well, which one is it? Right. And so you have to make sure when you're talking to the, to the person, you don't say shoot the one on the right. Cause there might be one on, there might be, three animals on the right and three animals on the left. And they're looking at this group of animals. So I'll say, okay, the animal is doing this. You see his right horn. There's a chip in the right horn about three inches above his eye. And now he just scratched his balls and now he licked his lips. Are you on that animal? Uh, no. Okay. Do not shoot. <laughs> Go back to that animal. And when you see the, shoot animal the disgusting one. Yeah. When you, when you see the one that's just scratching himself and rubbing his horn on that cactus, whatever, that's the one. Okay. Do you see what he's doing now? Okay. Never assume ever. That the hunter's on the right animal. No, you're and absolutely never right. Never assume. I make sure the guy's turrets on the right setting. You know, that's as my one of my jobs as a guide and as a hunter is to make sure that everybody's thinking clearly. And that's why you don't want a system that's you want a system that's repeatable. And that's why going to these shooting schools like the Brandon Rock Canyon one, they have a couple more courses coming up here in June and July, and they even have some. And they even have shooting courses where you go do a shooting course and shoot a cow elk, a management cow elk or a management bull. So it's a lot cheaper. And then we have it rolling bones here over in South Dakota. And we have a course that we teach in, in just in the Montana border uh, on one of those bigger hunting ranches. Um, we, our courses are a lot less expensive here. They're, you know, a thousand to $2,000, but the students have to get, rent a car or they have, and they get have to get a hotel like at Brandon rock. Everything's inclusive. You basically show up at the airport. They have the company van, you know, yeah, or that's, that's resort, company. that's resort hunting. And, uh, so rolling bones, you guys are doing, doing some long distance course training yeah, out there like too. One and a half to two day courses, which are good, quick and dirty. We don't have the amount of targets there because we have to move the targets there on rangeland where there's cattle and other things. And so it's not like a place where we can leave. So we go set up targets and paint rocks, like I said, yeah. and then, you know, we do trigger time and, and we train with 22 sometimes. So the guys see what the bullet drop is on a 22 go to sixes and six fives. And then the guys bring their hunting rifles too. And, you know, at Brandon rock, you'll probably put 200 plus rounds. You might put 250 or 300 rounds down because it's a three to four day shoot. 
this one is probably more like a hundred rounds, you know? So it's, it, it also reflects the price. Um, but w- there's one other course that I've, I've helped with and I've taken, uh, that is called Holland guns or Holland, uh, Holland rifles out of, um, uh, Oregon. And they actually bought up some property in Montana. They're in shooting schools in Montana or Wyoming now. And they do a really nice course, more, more really basics, really learning the fundamentals, mm-hmm. not fancy, but really good fundamental shooting for people that don't really know a lot. And it's a good, you know, so some of these courses assume that you already know quite a bit. And there's other courses that assume that you don't know that much. So you have to look at what level you're going to be at. And then there's a shooting course I sometimes go to called Mountain Shooting Center in um, Utah. And that's a high altitude course, also not fancy. You're going to be up on the mountains, and uh, but they do a lot of long range. And, and that's a really extreme shooting. That's like 1,000 to 2,000 yards which most hunters don't even have guns that can do that, nor do they have the knowledge. So where people need yeah. to really be good at shooting is that I call it a, you know, even 50 yards out to about six, 700 yards after that for hunting is more just for fun and training and understanding what wind drift, but very, very few people can make a first round hit cold bore with a rifle at over 700 yards or even 600, 500 yards of this that's, wind. That's absolutely critical is the cold bore hit. So like I was in Colorado this year and it was 12 degrees. Okay. And we're down, I'm laying in ice and it's at 575 yards is where this buck's at. And I got a 12 mile an hour wind right to left. So my dope book says, I don't know, say it's five and say it's at five and three quarter minutes. I had to hold, but I know it's 12 degrees. Now I also kept my ammunition in my pocket. I don't let it sit in the gun because then it's going to be 12 degrees too. And I'm not really sure what my first round velocity is going to be, but I know it's going to be less than, than it has been in training. So I added three quarters of a minute and, and uh, held for the wind and held for a movement. And, and the shot was absolutely spot on, but that was because I knew 12 degrees, I'm going to lose hundred, 150 feet a second in velocity on my yep. first round cold bore shot. So yeah, it's all down to practice, right? Folks, you can find Brian Martin at AsianMountainOutfitters.com. We haven't even talked about Marco Polo yet, but uh, we'll have you back on to go go over that, that uh, the drooling dream hunt. AsianMountainOutfitters.com. You can also check them out at Rolling Bones, RollingBones.com. They've got some great stuff going on. Give them a shout out. And uh, Brian, thank you for your time. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right. God bless. Good weekend. Shoot, Felipe! Shoot! When you have to shoot, shoot, don't talk. The Firing Line Radio Show has been brought to you by Bullseye Sports in Riverside, CCW Safe, Cutting Edge Bullets, Vortex Optics, Vortex, the Force of Optics, and by Philip Naiman and Cornerstone Christian Wealth Management. AM 590. The answer.